You're listening to Perspective on Manx Radio, which returns to the airwaves this week following a break for Easter Sunday. I'm joined in the studio by Neil Mellon of the Isle of Man Food Bank, uh, here to give us a bit of an update, really, on what the organisation's up to, current pressures and recent uh, developments. Good afternoon, Neil. Fast my Fast my. Um, you're you're very familiar ra- with radio now, of course. You appeared on Sunday Opinion with Roger Watterson to talk about the food bank in December 2017, and then again December last year to talk about the Tinwald Select Committee on Poverty. I think that was with Bob Harrison. Yes, to memory. Um, and also many interviews with the newsroom, of course. You mentioned some pieces you've done with with Beth, Beth oh dear, Beth Espy and Christy DeHaven. Um, one thing I don't think you've been asked, to my memory, um, what made you focus your efforts into a, a food bank on the Isle of Man and what continues to, to drive you to do so, I suppose? Um, well, I have to say, probably the driving force initially was I come from a large family. I have uh, five sisters, five brothers. So mealtimes were always very exciting and good. We learned the value of food, but also we spent quite a bit of time eyeing up each other's plates and saying, are you having that or do you want to swap? Or simply, if you're not having it, I will. Um, so from a very young age, I was aware of the, the value of food and the importance of not wasting food. Um, and then throughout my career in the health service nursing, um, I was very aware of waste in the NHS. So I got involved in quite a number of projects over a number of years in uh, picking up surplus equipment, picking up dressings, etc., that weren't used but were fine to be used. Um, and I would get them out to countries around the, the rest of the world. So I've always been involved in reducing waste where possible or making the most of waste. Um, and that continued. Um, back in Yorkshire when I was working there I ran a clinic for the homeless in Humberside uh, for a year and a half and I got a lot of experience and learnt a lot from that and then when I came to the island I was involved in both uh, homeless issues and then in the setting up of the food bank. I'm interested to hear about your your family background that's something I didn't know that's basically like a society on a on a micro scale, oh, I yes. suppose. So it, you... was, uh, uh, w- it was a very interesting way to grow up. And, of course, I was growing up in a country where, effectively, we were almost in a civil war situation. Um, but it was good. And you've mentioned a bit about your professional background as well. Um, and presumably there are lots of transferable skills that come into the oh, food ab- bank from, absolutely. From, from, from your past too. Yes, absolutely. Particularly when it comes to the... Um, interviewing of clients, get them on board and engaged with the food bank. It's a very important role. And in terms of the volunteers and the people you work with in the Isle of Man food bank, are are people quite like-minded perhaps, or are they from maybe a variety of backgrounds? We have volunteers coming from a wide variety of backgrounds, um, and we welcome them all. What we do is we look for those transferable skills that you've already mentioned. Um, but we have people who come to us from administration and secretarial work. We have people who come from IT. We have people who come in from banking. Um, we have people who come in from the various professions. So everybody's welcome, welcomed. Everyone's got a skill. Um, and we've got people who have come in to volunteer after they've benefited from the food bank. 
Um, and we, so we welcome them on board as well. And of course, the organisation relies upon that voluntary input to uh, to, to, to keep going. Um, yeah. What are the perhaps numbers like, if you don't if you don't mind me asking, now compared to when you when you were formed? Um, well, when we started the ball rolling, uh, it was myself and David Gone. So we we effectively started from a group of two sharing similar ideas. Um, and, and took it from there. Now we have uh, about 50 volunteers across the island because we have the um, headquarters up at Balfletcher House. Um, we also have a hub up in the north in Ramsey and we have a hub, hub down south base in Port Erin. Um, but having said that, while it sounds like a, a lot of numbers, we're still regularly short for volunteers in Balfletcher. And while it doesn't happen often, there are times that my my wife and I can turn up and be the only two volunteers in there for a morning or an afternoon. And I suppose it'd be a good thing to, to get in early. How do people become involved if they if they do wish to? They simply have to ring either our landline um, number, which is 646-999, which I think perhaps means we're some sort of emergency service on the island, um, or our... 24-hour mobile phone. Now, we mentioned just off-air, the food bank on the island was formed um, sort of officially in November 2013, or certainly that's what it says on, on our records. Presumably the concept or the thought process perhaps dated back a little further. Oh, absolutely. Um, November 2013 was, as the Americans would say, that's when we had feet on the ground running um, the food bank. Uh, essentially what happened there was we were looking at starting the following year um, but we got a push from Tesco. Tesco UK um, had fundraising uh, exercises for food banks in Britain um, but that didn't take place on the island. Uh, they made contact with us and said we want to start this happening on the island. They had a forerun the, the year before um, but it wasn't necessarily well planned and well supported by various charities. So they contacted us and we felt obliged really to not miss that opportunity. So we started before we'd planned and we learned a lot from that. And was that uh, formation kind of drawing upon other comparable organisations, perhaps from elsewhere? Yes, um, what had happened... Um, was certainly from my end of things, I was looking at the possible need of the, for a food bank on the Isle of Man or showing that there wasn't a need um, for our local Rotary Club, Douglas Bay. Um, we were just looking for another community project. And so I started that research uh, into the subject. And in all honesty, I was expecting to come back and say to everybody, look, just take the subject off the off the board because there's just not a need for it. And that was my expected outcome. In actual fact, once I started looking into it and working with other agencies who were involved, it became aware there was a real need for support out in the community. Um, a lot of people were involved in things, but they weren't always necessarily sharing that information and acting on it together. So would it be fair to say that there wasn't an anticipation it would grow to the the scale it has? Oh, absolutely not. Um, I was expecting to go back to the Rotary and say, now that we're shown there's a need for this, 
nothing for us to worry about chaps we've all got business backgrounds we, we know how to drop a business plan all we have to do is identify where we can get food from how we're going to transport it to a hub and how we distribute it distribute it from there and there'll be no hands-on for us we'll just get it done by volunteers little did i expect you know five years later we'll be putting in at times 10 hours a day five days a week now um people may already know you're obviously not originally from the isle of man and um, moved here in adulthood is that right so what yes i um, we moved here just short of 20 years ago so what were your sort of perceptions of the manx community like i don't mean that too generally but specifically you know feeling there was a a need perhaps for for something like the food bank do you think that was true when you when you moved here? oh no 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 absolutely not um we had very little preconceptions about coming to the isle of man um i'd actually um signed up for a new post in the republic of ireland in healthcare, uh in a very senior post more senior to the one i was offered here um however they were slow in getting the contract together. The contract that they were formulating was one that had to be approved by the Irish government, so that was dragging its feet. And in the interim, Nobles contacted my wife and said, we have an application in from your husband, which we'd misplaced. Is he still interested? And we came over to the island. My wife drove around and had a look around while I had my interview. And we both came out, met each other and said, we've got to come. We, we just fell in love straight away with the place. So with no preconceptions at all. And from you moving here to the formation of the food bank, I suppose, um, you've mentioned about your, your career in the in, in medical healthcare professions. Yes. Um, what do you feel changed maybe in that time? Um, Dolan, in all honesty, I'm still exploring it. And all I can say is... Um, I thought I was fairly shockproof because my work in critical care environments, day to day, we never knew what we were going to get and how we would deal with it. Um, but the stories that I hear from the food bank and the stories that people are good enough to share with me, because it is a privilege to get this information, um, they, they're never ending they're, and there's never any two the same. And it might sound a cliche the, the reason i i'm asking these things i think there's a perception that um uh, poverty if you like doesn't doesn't exist on the island or or that kind of that kind of level of of, of income doesn't oh. doesn't exist here people people have that that attitude yeah still. I, absolutely and i have a lot of people that will stop me and talk to me about their views on the island and i'm always prepared to listen and people are entitled to their opinions but I meet a lot of bias in relation to uh, views on the, the need for the food bank. I have people that say directly, we don't need a food bank. Uh, you shouldn't be encouraging them. And they talk about people using the food bank like a lesser species, people with less rights, uh, not to be encouraged. But we go through a fairly comprehensive interview with everybody who applies for the food bank. And I, I genuinely believe that the stories that we get are true and accurate. And I see a lot of deprivation. I also keep a quite an active caseload in the community. So I get out to the houses, get out and meet individuals and families. I sit in a lot of very cold houses because people have fuel poverty as well as food poverty. Um, I see a lot of ruined dinners and burnt dinners. And I see 
evidence of poor household management. But the stories are accurate and very real. Um, and it doesn't matter whether I'm talking to politicians or potential politicians or the public, but a lot of people have the view that um, we're just supporting people who are idle, who sit, watch TV all day, smoke, drink wine, and generally have a good time because of the food bank. And I can assure you that's just not true. If, um, if say, say, if I was somebody who was coming to the food bank, in, in, you know, in the, in the hope of using its services, what... Um, what kind of criteria do I have to meet, I suppose, if that's, if that's the right way to put it? Basically, anyone who rings on the phone or knocks on the door and says, Mr, I'm hungry and I'm broke, that's your start for 10 and that gets you in. Um, during the interview, uh, we'll look at the number of people in the household, whether it's an individual couple or a family. We'll look at income, whether they're in work or on benefits or those who are not entitled to benefits and have absolutely nothing coming in. We look at what's being spent in terms of rent, fuel, um, and essential needs. We don't include the food at this stage. We just look at what's going out of the house. <coughs> Pardon me. And then we balance that up and see what's left. And often we're working with um, families of perhaps four, five, or six with 40 to 50 pounds a week uh, to survive on and that's just not realistic we we speak to you recently we being the you know the royal we of manx radio whether that be newsroom or on several of the different programs about the numbers of people using the services on the island um which appears to have sort of steadily gone up since the food bank food bank was formed is that still the case now that we're we're seeing increased demand Absolutely. We're seeing not just more people coming in, but we're also seeing people needing support for longer than we had first anticipated. So five years ago, when the numbers were much smaller and the population we were meeting and working with were prim primarily males and primarily singletons, um, that's all changed. Now we're working primarily with families with male singletons being a lot further down the line. Um, but we also see them engaging for longer periods. So five years ago, we would meet, we would go through the interview, we'd come up with an action plan that identified what pushed them into crisis and how we could either help directly or indirectly by signposting them on to other charities and agencies that we knew could help. Most of the issues were resolved within four weeks. Over those five years, that stretched out to about six weeks up until last year when we moved up to the new headquarters at Valla Fletcher. And I'm still seeing this period of um, support getting longer and getting longer. Now, I'm watching it at the minute to see what those factors are and how we can plan for it for the future. The whole intention of the food bank is to help people in crisis for that period of time. Um, but now what we're seeing is more and more evidence of low-income families having just enough to keep them going week to week, month to month, until they hit a crisis, an unexpected expense or an unexpected problem that affects their income. So that could be that could be somebody who's actually at work getting a salary, coping, and the boss says, 
do you know what? You're so good and you've been here for so long, we're going to take you off weekly pay and put you on to monthly pay and you know, be a professional, uh, which is great. But suddenly you've got three weeks to cope without a salary. And if in that time your rent bill arrives or your gas bill arrives, you haven't got that money to put into it. There's don't have that support in the background. Um, and that can be enough to trigger a problem. Being pregnant and having a baby, joyful experience, but that child's going to cost you in the region of £20 a week on milk and nappies or more. Um, and that can tip you over the edge if you're looking at a balance in a budget of about £40 or £50 a week. So there, there are lots of factors and circumstantial changes to consider for, Trem for people. Tremendous factors. Um, health makes a difference. Uh, ill health of parents who are living off island and having to go across to see them on a limited budget but feeling obliged to because they're your parents and you love them. Um, breakdown in relationships. We work with uh, people who have mental health problems and physical health problems. Um, we have people living who are in an established relationship, they have their own home, pots, pans, cookers, etc., which is great. But at the other end, we've got people who are either living in houses of multiple occupancy and they're very restricted to what they can use. Um, we work with people that only have access to a kettle to prepare food with. And we'll work with people who are living in a car or a van for a number of weeks, even months. Um, and they're even more restricted in what they can do. So it goes without saying then that the help and support that Isle of Man Food Bank provides takes different forms on a on a case-by-case -case basis oh, then really? Absolutely. We started off five years ago thinking we were very clever. We designed a food box that was nutritionally balanced and it would fit the needs of everybody. But when we started working with the clients and visiting their homes, then we discovered our box, which was so clever we thought, was fine if you had a cooker and a fridge and a freezer and you pots and pans to cook it in. But if you were sharing with other people and you only had access to a kettle or perhaps a microwave, you were getting fairly stuck. Um, and as time's gone on, those boxes become more and more sophisticated. So we'll work with people who are perhaps gluten-free, people who are allergic to lactose or dairy produce generally. We'll work with diabetics. We work with people who are vegan and vegetarian. So the boxes are designed around the client rather than expecting the client to fit the box. The Nation Station, Manx Radio. You're listening to Perspective on Manx Radio. I'm joined by Neil Mellon from the Isle of Man Food Bank. Just before the break there, Neil, you were saying how the organisation started really from two people at the beginning. Yes. How has that expanded and... Um, what sort of structure does the organisation take now, I suppose? Um, when we launched the uh, concept of a food bank, we arranged um, a public meeting that was done at St George's. And we um, invited uh, a range of people that could come and either support it or add value to it or give us information and advice. And from that meeting, there were a number of things that we realised. One was there was general support for it as long as we didn't become a toxic charity. Now, in all honesty, I was sat there thinking, where's my dictionary? What is a toxic charity? And I couldn't work it out. But when I went into it and explored it, essentially what people were saying is, yes, 
if you're supporting people in crisis and you're making a difference, that's good. But if, as a charity, all you do is support people who then become reliant on the charity, then we might as well be giving out bags of heroin or bottles of whiskey. So we had to ensure that we didn't create a dependency and we've fought hard to do that for the last five years. So have you have you encountered a bit of, um, well, more than a bit maybe, of, of sort of scepticism, if that's fair, about, about some of the operations? Oh, yes. Um, people are not shy about coming forwards on the island. Um, and I think that's a good thing because, you, you know, you need to have uh, a critic um, to help you think about what you're doing and to challenge you and make think, am I getting it right? Um, but being a critic's one thing, being a cynic is something else. And I meet a lot of cynics, but it's easy to be a cynic. It requires no energy. You just sit back there in your armchair and throw muck at anybody and be as cynical as you want, and you don't have to justify it. Um, but good criticism is always welcome. And what, what sort of, specifically the criticism, not, not cynicism, what criticism do do you receive or do, do volunteers receive maybe? Oh, um, I know that some volunteers um, quite upset at Christmas when they were out collecting food at weird supermarkets um, with people saying, uh, you shouldn't be doing this. Just as bold as that. shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be encouraging people to go to the food bank. We don't need the food bank. Um, the problem is nobody knows who's going to be next. We've worked, well, over the last five years, I've worked specifically with two families that came from uh, a, a background of being millionaires who both woke up one morning and the money had gone. The companies had gone bust. There was no money. There was a lot of debt. They had to start to learn how to live again very frugally. Um, and that's a massive challenge. You don't know when the company you're working for is going to go bust. There may not be compensation or redundancy payments. Um, you can plan for all sorts. It doesn't mean life's going to go that way. So quite a part of my work is listening to lost dreams. Nobody wants to come into the food bank and say, Mr, I'm hungry, I'm not coping, I'm stuck for money, the kids are hungry, I need some help. But as I'll say to a lot of people, um, a lot of parents, two things. One, of all the vocations you can go into, parenting and good parenting requires much more courage than any of the other vocations. Um, and are you, which is more correct, being mature enough and wise enough to acknowledge you've got a problem, the kids are hungry, and come and ask for help, however embarrassing it is, or to sit at home going, oh, I'm not going to go to the food bank, I'm not going to ask for help because I'm too proud. So the ones that come and ask, the food's there, it's been donated by the public who are superb on the island for supporting the food bank. Um, and we tried to be guardians of it and allocate it appropriately. So about five and a half years or something like that of, of the food bank being around, do you feel it's still um, a bit of a sort of taboo subject maybe? Yes, it, it, people are still accessing us and they're accessing it more, uh, well, I don't want to say more frequently, that sounds like we get repeat offenders coming back and that's not the case. Most people will access it as a one-off experience and there's it's really very rewarding with people at the end of their agreed time 
come in and say, Mister, this is my last day, my last food parcel. Thanks a million. You've really made a difference. And while we've been getting food from the food bank, we've had that food security. We could breathe. Um, but as well as that, we've resolved our problem, say, with Mike's gas and heating problems, or we've resolved the problem with our landlord and our tenure secure. We can breathe again, you know. Or even we've put some money aside and we've got stuff sorted out for uniforms for the new year and the new school, etc. And as, as we were talking about before the break, food bank maybe implies sort of crudely that it's sort of a, a repository of, of physical goods, but it's it's a, it's much more than that as a service, isn't it? Oh, yes, absolutely. We take a very holistic approach. So we look at all the problems that are involved. Um, and while, oh, no pun in, in, intended, but the bread and butter of what we do is about food. Uh, you can't work with people with low incomes or no money at all when you're not entitled to benefits and not be aware of fuel poverty as well and other problems. And there's an old um, saying, when, when money goes out the window, love walks out the door. So we see a lot of relationship problems. We see a lot of stress and anxiety related to this. We see a lot of depression problems. Um, and we see physical health problems that can get worse because of that food deprivation. And we will talk a bit more about the... Uh uh, sort of collaborative efforts with other organisations um, after one o'clock. It's probably a good time to mention that uh, Dylan Nevote, I hope I've said that right, from the Salvation Army will be joining us after one so we can talk a bit more more broadly there. Um, perhaps in my naivety, um, I was slightly interested in, just to pick on so something you said, um, I don't expect or perhaps didn't expect volunteers at an organisation like the Food Bank to need to be thick-skinned in in public but if if you have people saying to them well we, we we don't need this here that's that's quite a lot of pressure isn't it really for somebody who's who's giving up their their time really yes the volunteers give up time they put in a lot of energy and um, they use their own fuel get in and out of the different uh, hubs um, they use their fuel when they're going around doing food deliveries and it's all greatly appreciated um, I'm not saying we're overly sensitive, it's quite the opposite, you know, criticism is valued and it's worthwhile. And one of the places that I learn the most from actually is the visits to organisations, but particularly to schools when we go out and do talks. Um, and the children, I, I translated the usual talk I would give to adult groups into what I thought was child-friendly speak. And I learned very quickly from the schools, the children don't need it to be child friendly. They have a great understanding of what it is to go without. They have an understanding of the importance of good decision making. And um, I learned from them all the time. I always come back thinking, you know, there's, got, there's an idea there that I want to take further. So you were talking about the, the different branches, if you like, of Food Bank and what we get involved in. We're certainly very involved in the education of uh, school children and uh, organisations and faith groups and others around the the island. Um, so since we moved up to Ballot Fletcher, we converted one of our rooms into an education room, and as well as giving our usual talk in there, we've got the advantage of being able to show people around the food bank, show them how it works, and then particularly with the children, get them to split into groups and put together a 
food parcel for either one person or a couple or a family and get them thinking about what, what's required. So if at the end of the exercise, the groups are sat and they've got a, a parcel that includes food, perhaps a toothbrush and toothpaste, uh, toiletries, few toilet rolls, etc. We know we've got the message across. And if little Johnny sat in a corner with a box of 28 packets of Smarties, we'd fail miserably. Across a calendar year, um, I would guess there'd be sort of pressure points throughout the year where you have have more demand perhaps for the food bank services. Um, Christmas would be the obvious one, of course. Well, you would think that. You would think that. But in actual fact, our big push, our real big pincer point is the school holidays and we've become very aware of the issues around um, holiday hunger in the last two years. So for example um, last summer uh, we were putting out we were putting out about 225 food parcels a month over the summer months and that was supporting in the region of about 140 adults and 140 children. The, one of our challenges is that um, right from the outset we recorded what we did by counting the number of food parcels that went out. Um, and that worked for a while because we could tell, right, we're busy or we're getting busier than normal. Um, but it really didn't tell the story of what was happening. So in year one, we put out 150 food parcels on average. Year two, we put, put out 300. Uh, and both years, government and media were saying, oh, this is ridiculous. You know, we're the seventh or eighth richest nation in the world per capita, theoretically. Um, so we shouldn't need this. But there's a big difference between those that have and those that don't have. Um, and, and that was part of the problem. So we saw this growth uh, year after, in year three, for, uh, we went up to about 550 food bags. Year after that, we were on 1,000. Now we're saying to see 250 food parcels go out in a month, it's quite shocking. That was equivalent of the average for the first two years. Um, but even that doesn't tell the whole story because we would say to government, oh, here's the number of bags that we're putting out and we're getting busier and busier. But my concern was, well, what do the public understand? What do politicians understand a food box to be? Because while we count the number of food parcels going out, it doesn't say whether it's for an individual or for a family of six. So it's still one food parcel, one you can pick up easily, and the other one you can't pick up at all. You have to get people to help you load your car up with it. Um, so we looked um, over this summer holidays, um, for the first time we looked last year, uh, 2018, and what did that actually mean? And I thought, well, we know now how many adults and how many children we're supporting with the food parcels. We know how many is going out each month. We, we're fairly confident that we give people enough food to have breakfast, dinner and tea for a week. Now that's very unlike England where you get food parcels for three days. Uh, we give the food for a week. So we calculated then how many meals is that in a month and Although I've been doing it for five years now, I'm saying let's have a look at it. I certainly wasn't expecting the figure that we got. 
So we were putting out on average 19,000 meals a month onto this island, which is shocking. But thank God it's there to help those people. And again, something I, I sort of point I made before the this perception that um, that it doesn't apply on the Isle of Man, maybe because uh, well, you mentioned a bit about the island's um, perceived economic status, but you have absolute poverty and you have relative poverty, don't you? Which um, are two two quite quite different things too. Yes, yeah, two very different things. Uh, there's lots of definitions around what poverty is. Um, my view is that poverty is where the total income for an individual or couple or family generates a dilemma for them in choosing which essential basic needs to prioritise and which to ra ration, um, or, or even which to do without, which may result in physical, emotional or mental harm or generate charges of negligence. And that's one of my big worries. You know, I wasn't aware till I was getting involved in this work that um, parents could face charges of negligence if they can't guarantee food security and heat security for children over a, a significant period. Um, it would be remiss of me not to talk about the Timwald Select Committee, which has been formed looking into poverty on the Isle of Man, something which um, I know the Isle of Man Food Bank's given evidence to, along with other organisations. You appeared on Sunday Opinion just before Christmas to, to talk about that. Um, I was just going to play for you a little bit now. This is Aaron Ibanez speaking to uh, Juan Watterson, Speaker of the House of Keys, who I think chairs the committee, um, begins by asking him if the formation of the committee was testament to a caring society or one that has neglected its most vulnerable. I think it's uh, a late realisation that there really is an issue here. I think we've known about it for a while. Uh, certainly it was more visible back in perhaps the 60s and 70s when the island didn't have as much money. And as the economy has grown, as the government revenues have increased, albeit uh, not so much recently, but while we've had that period of economic growth, it has become more hidden. And so uh, it's perhaps been less at the forefront of people's thinking. And so uh, it was about time that it did get the attention that it deserves. So I would think that certainly in terms of Tinwald's support for the Select Committee earlier this year, it was very much about demonstrating that we are a caring society and that more needs to be done in this area to make sure that all the, uh, the systems and services across government really do join up and deliver for those who need it most. You've been a member of Keys for 12 years, mm -hmm. am I right? And I think you will have seen in 2008 the registering of GRI as a charity. Mm -hmm. For the people on the front line, perhaps working in the third sector, this is an issue that's over a decade old now. Mm -hmm. In your tenure or perhaps in your political career in Keys, what have you seen to address poverty? Uh, well, I suppose at various different stages in my political career, um, I've been involved in, in different ways of trying to improve uh, the overall uh, system. Um, I've done terms as, as member for social security. I've done member as uh, member for housing. Um, I spent five years at home affairs. Uh, all of these touch on some of the different issues. Um, however, the way that we structure government means very much these are sometimes operating in silos, and we need to sort of test whether they're working with the people who are out there on the front line, either in the third sector, um, who are trying to 
match people up with housing or indeed the, the individuals themselves who are either just about managing or really struggling um, to make sure that the system works for them. And that's going to be the hardest part of this committee, actually reaching out and connecting with uh, those people who are struggling. Because when you are struggling, you've got other things to worry about than engaging with a Tynwald Select Committee. Is it fair to say that the term poverty has only recently come into the vernacular of Tynwald? I think poverty has um, has been has dropped in and out of, of themes over the years in Tinwald. Um, we we saw housing poverty at one point um, get uh, get more traction when there was a, a rebasing of public se- sector housing rents. Um, certainly, fuel poverty when when oil and gas prices have particularly peaked. There's been more talk about uh, fuel poverty. So it, these things have sort of been on the radar before, but there's never been a single sort of coordinated approach to looking across the whole landscape, uh, across the whole piece, as indeed say, the, the people who are uh, being challenged with these issues are facing, um, to see if all, all the pieces do join up. Has there ever been opposition to the Timor Select Committee? Has its formation perhaps ever been seen as contrary to a certain image of the Isle of Man? Um, no, um, I, I think that we will it's been roundly supported by Tynwald. Um, we had a seminar uh, earlier this week uh, with uh, people from across government, um, from people from the charitable sector, third sector, um, to talk about the issues of poverty and split into sort of seven different themes. And that was attended by the chief minister and other ministers. So I think there is a genuine desire out there to make sure that we are doing the best that we possibly can uh, for the Manx people. And this is a, a good opportunity to have a coordinated approach to it. That was Speaker of the House of Keys, Chair of the Tinwald Select Committee on Poverty, Dewan Watterson there, speaking to Aaron Ibanez. And that was back in January of this year. Um, Mr Mellon, I suppose the fact that the committee has been established and is is undertaking this uh, process is recognition that there is work to be done. Um, yes, absolutely. I'm full of admiration for June for doing this. And I think he's on the right route. Um, what's unfortunate is, as you said, that was January. We've had no follow-up since then. Um, there's been no action that I'm aware of since then. Um, at that workshop which was mentioned which was quite exciting I actually found that quite intimidating at times not because I was working with politicians not because of the numbers or how it was arranged but listening to some of the views that were being put to me I sat with one politician and it was like listening to Charles Dickens rewrite um, A Christmas Carol Um, and I was horrified at what was being said by one or two but the good part that came out of that was the number of politicians that sat and asked questions. Um, I was buddied up with Ross Stevens from the Social Security, and I think we worked really well together, him giving the information on what benefits are available to people, the problems that they come across, and the numbers of people benefit, well, the number of people's getting benefits. But what you couldn't say was, was that a benefit to them? The, the, the department can't answer the question, is it making a difference to the individuals? Are they getting enough or are they getting too much? Whereas Ross does acknowledge why we don't have the statistics that his department will have. We have that knowledge and that insight into what's going on. So we don't look at saying, oh, the answer is to throw money at a family. That's short. The answer is to say, 
what specifically put you into that crisis and how can we help? So providing food that you need, not necessarily what you want, but what you need, is one of our key objectives. But also we realise that that's not sufficient on its own if you don't know how to process that food. So we're involved in helping people understand how to use food differently, how to use it better. And also then, do you have the right equipment for processing that food? Um, when I go around the island, I see a lot of properties with broken ovens, uh, ovens that are only partially working, ovens that are giving off shocks. Landlords won't replace them because, as they say, you know, I bought that 20 years ago. It's been used by hundreds of people. It's fine. You know, wrong. The answer is it's dangerous. It needs to be changed. Um, so the food bank provides slow cookers to some families and individuals that can use it and will take it on and use the food better. So there's three aspects to what we're doing with that food. But after that workshop, um, I invited uh, politicians to come and meet some of the clients because what was being said is we want to make a difference, but we can't find anyone that needs help. Well, I don't understand that because I see people every day that need help. So I spent time working with our clients, picking out individuals and said, how would you feel about sharing your story with politicians? Now, it's hard enough to come into food bank in the first place and say, I need help. But then to go and share that story with someone in officialdom can be challenging. But we have a, a, a load of case studies ready for politicians to share. And the individual who said, yes, I'll sit and tell my story as long as it's anonymized. So people are willing to meet and... Um, We've still not heard back from, not one politician has taken us up on that. Just very quickly, uh, we are approaching the one o'clock news. Um, Mr. Watson said it was a decade old problem. Um, do you, would, you, would you agree with that sta statement? I wouldn't. If, if you drive down Myrtle Street, the back of um, St. Mary's of the Isle in Douglas, you can see a building and on its porch, it mentions the, food, the soup kitchen of Douglas. You know, this is something that's there's been hunger on this island for long periods of time. Uh, the Salvation Army that will be meeting this afternoon have had a long history of dealing with hunger on the island. It's just been done quietly and in the background. But no, this has been a long-standing problem, which I think it's been convenient for people to ignore for a long time. The Nation Station Manx Radio. Faster, welcome back. You're listening to Perspective on Manx Radio. We're joined for this part of the programme by Lieutenant Dylan Nevote from the Salvation Army. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you very much indeed for uh, giving up your Sunday afternoon for us. You're welcome. Um, something I spoke with uh, Neil about before um, in the sort of first half of the programme was about his reasons for for doing what he does. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you the same thing, really. I'm interested about your your inspirations. Well, how long uh, how long do you have, really? <laughs> I'll keep it short. Um, yeah, so I come from South Africa, and um, yeah, so that's where I grew up. That's where I was brought up. And um, you know, if you look through the history books, uh, South Africa has um, had a jaded past. And uh, so I finished all my schooling. I got a job. Um, but the reality was I encountered, um, you know, a lot of crime, a lot of poverty. And I just got to a point where I thought, you know what, I need to I need to make a difference in this world. It's a crazy world we live in and uh, I need to play my part. 
um, I'm a Christian, so that fits very nicely into the biblical context that uh, we need to bring transformation, good change into this world. Um, so yeah, I, I went over to work in America at a summer camp uh, for the Salvation Army. So that's the first time I ever encountered the Salvation Army. Um, I worked uh, in an inner city sort of you know city uh, with children who were really uh, disenfranchised, came from a very uh, difficult background, you know, kids who'd come out of gangs, kids who were just involved in the wrong things, and got opportunity to sort of interact with them as a camp counselor. And the Salvation Army were great. You know, it's um, they, they care for just whoever comes into the camp. Um, got opportunity to do fun stuff with the kids, and that's that was my starting point with the Salvation Army. Um, so I got into youth work, into children's work, came over to uh, Britain, uh, going back 2003, and uh, yeah, I got started again working with uh, antisocial kids in the community. Some crazy stories I can tell you. You know, going into crowds of young people back in the day, they used to uh, gather and congregate in huge masses in the town centres and. You know, trying not to get arrested by the police, trying to claim, actually, I'm a youth worker here, don't arrest me. I'm trying to help, you know, get the kids to do something constructive with their time. I went from that uh, into social services. I worked um, with the homeless, with the Salvation Army. And um, I I wasn't quite sure how that was going to work out, but I absolutely loved that. So I used to look after about a dozen men uh, from various backgrounds, um, from drug dependency to alcohol dependency, mental health, out of prison, uh, people just with very uh, varied backgrounds. And to be a part of trying to help people, you know, forge a way forward in life, uh, trying to help them find accommodation uh, and trying to just help people be empowered for themselves, you know, and, and bring a good change in the community. So that's how I got started. And then going back to 2013, myself and my wife, Rachel, we went into a training college in London to be trained as Salvation Army officers, which is a leadership in the Salvation Army. And uh, we've been doing it ever since. Love it. Uh, every day is different. Uh, it's an adventure. It's exciting. So that's, that's why I do what I do. So tell us a bit about what your role entails on the island then in the organization here. Yeah, yeah. So basically, um, we're, you know, Salvation Army, we do... Um, a lot of different types of work. Um, arguably, it's uh, inter- intergenerational work. So it's from the young to the old. Uh, so my week could entail uh, running parents and toddler groups, uh, you know, working with uh, families, with carers, with uh, grandparents. Uh, we have uh, a community lunch club where we serve the vulnerable, the lonely, helping people have company, make friends, have a good meal, you know, good diet. Um, I could work, we have a nursery, we work with a nursery with young children. Uh, we have a bail and probation house, so we help uh, uh, provide that sort of um, service in the community. Uh, I sometimes go into the prison, uh, just varied. And, and then obviously the main uh, sort of bread and butter of our work is we are a Christian church. So I'm a minister, I'm a pastor, and uh, so I do pastoral work, caring, you know, go and visit people. Um, I preach on a Sunday. I do all sorts of varied things for the church. So, yeah, that's pretty much who we are. And I, it is Sunday today, of course. So thank it you is, very much, yeah. especially for, for, <laughs> for giving us an hour of your time. You turned to Neil partway through that. And something I wanted to ask is, um, obviously, you, you sort of share some, some common goals. I think it would be yeah, fair to say. Absolutely. Um, what, what kind of collaboration is there between organizations on the island? 
Yeah, so um, I came to the island in July last year with uh, with Rachel, and um, very quickly Neil came and introduced himself to us in our office. And uh, you know we're a firm believer in collaboration and partnership, so we have crossed over. Uh, That's fair to say yes. at certain points in our work, and uh, yeah, and I think it's important that you know we're not here to sort of um, try and work on our own steam. I think as a community, in different organisations, and working with the government. And the citizens, you know, we have to pull together, and we're stronger together. So we do, we do uh, share referrals. Absolutely, I've been over to visit Neil, uh, one gentleman I remember, and we we sat down with the gentleman and, you know, went through sort of a review of where he was at, and um, trying to help him get food. Um, and other days, I'll be helping the same individual top up his electric, um, or just having um, ten minutes to have a cup of coffee and just. Sometimes people just need to talk. It's not necessarily just material things that they're looking for. They're just looking for somebody to just show them a bit of attention, that to show that somebody actually cares about them. So, do you do you find that there's sort of significant crossover with the people who who perhaps use the services of the Salvation Army, who who might also use yes. the, use the food yeah. bank? Yeah. If we're working with an individual and we're looking at an action plan, that we won't necessarily have the facilities to give all the answers but we'll have the knowledge as to who to contact, who can help. Um, so it wouldn't be uncommon for us to say to somebody, okay, look, you know, obviously based on what your financial balance is, your, we know your income, we know what you're spending, here's the balance that's left to buy food and essential stuff. So over the next six weeks, we'll support you. You'll have your weekly parcels. Um, but what you're saving on that we you need to then put that money into paying off your gas bill paying off the landlord which we mentioned earlier but at the same time we'll signpost other agencies so we could be saying look you know you've got a few kids here and it's coming up to september shortly you know another pinch point for the family because you need to be looking at school uniforms don't be buying them before summer get them later but we'll put you in touch with the Salvation Army because they can help support with that. Or we'll be looking at perhaps when we identify that somebody's got very poor skills in terms of budgeting, then while we do um, our exercise and what's coming in going out, uh, which people do find very educational, they'll often say, can I have a copy of that? I've never seen my income laid out like that. But we would refer them up to the Department of Fair Trading where they have debt management, debt counselling, they'll do it much more forensically, but they can also help people and say, mm. you know, we can look at reducing what you're paying off. You still have to pay the amount of money, but less money per month to allow you to have more money to budget with and get the essentials. So it's always identifying who we can uh, work with to help, but um, it's very much a, a hotline to the Salvation Army for stuff. Um, you're, you've mentioned you're a fairly fresh pair of eyes to yeah. uh, to the Isle of Man. Um, I'm interested on what your first impressions are, or, or were maybe, or whether they've changed. Um, maybe a kind of a, a, a year after after moving here. Uh, how how does it how does it compare here, living and working here, to to the other jurisdictions you've you've um, you've worked in, lived in? Yeah. So obviously, I just want to say coming to the islands, brilliant. It's such a beautiful island. Um, the people are really friendly. Um, I would say, arguably, it's one of the more affluent areas I've worked in. Um, and, I, you know, I've, I've sort of been challenged, you know, how can we alleviate poverty altogether? 
And I think for myself, you know, looking at the Isle of Man, I think it's it's a tricky question because I think if you take out the human nature, you know, if you take out crisis and trauma and the complications of human life, I think if you took away all those things, then we would have paradise, we'd have utopia, we'd have an Eden. And and I'm, I just want to commend the Isle of Man because, you know, that's genuinely the heart of of the nation is that that we we work towards how do we get to a point of we are as good as we can be everybody's living in harmony we're self-supportive you know we, we're able to uh, look after ourselves well and care for each other well and love our neighbors well um, I'm not quite sure we'll ever completely alleviate alleviate poverty we can work towards it and minimize it as much as we can um, but I think Isle of Man definitely needs to be commended. It's a beautiful place. It's doing really, really well. And um, yeah, I don't want to compare <laughs> to, uh, to any other place too much, but say that, you know, no place is perfect, um, but we've got to always strive to, to be the best we can be. Are there, are there challenges, and this isn't asking for a comparison, but are there challenges that are unique to the island, you feel, or, or pressures perhaps here that... Um, that well yeah that that exists here perhaps that might might not elsewhere you know I, I think just from being here for nearly a year um, you know my, my initial impression is that um, you know the, the heart is that we, we want to um, make a difference a, a positive difference but yeah I'm just not sure that um, w we can completely make it perfect if that makes sense so I don't know if I've answered your question properly, but Don, I'd like to come in if I could on that. Course, I, yeah. I can see problems that are unique to the end, and particularly in relation to our location and adverse weather. We're, we all grow and live on the island, aware of those days when the boat fails to arrive, and there's nothing mm -hmm. to put on the supermarket shelves, mm -hmm. and we can see the reaction of people if that runs for two or three days. But obviously, if the supermarkets are running out of food. For shoppers, they run out of food that then becomes available for the food bank. So there are times that we'll see significant dips in what comes into the food bank. Yeah, I would like to say there's a uniqueness to the island, obviously, because we're on an island. And as uh, Niels mentioned, you know, there can be times of shortage. So we have to compensate for those times. And, you know, for some people, you know, they may not be able to just pop off the island. Uh, and so it does provide unique challenges when it comes to things like employment, looking after oneself, housing, etc. So in that sense, I think it is quite different to other places I've worked in. I caught up with you a little bit just before Christmas as the Salvation Army was uh, preparing or doing some of its stockpiling um, in advance of the festive season. Um, Obviously, that's something that you do at, at Christmas time. Does that yeah. happen other times of the year as well? So mainly we have a Christmas appeal. Um, and then generally through the rest of the year, we provide practical assistance or we call it community relief. So um, if I may, I've got a couple stats here, not to bore you. No, sure. Uh, sure. <laughs> but I've got a couple stats here. You know, So we get around 800 referrals a year from various agencies, from uh, government bodies to, to support people. Um, but, you know, in reality, we could be helping, um, I've got here, about 1,400 people throughout the year, uh, but that's including the Christmas appeal. Um, so, yeah, for various things, people will phone in and we'll do our best to help people out. And, um, you know, the public are very generous and supportive of the Salvation Army. So, uh, you know, we want to make sure we're good stewards with the income and that uh, we distribute that wisely and tactfully. Um, so, yeah. 
we, we definitely helped throughout the rest of the year. Um, a question for, for both really. Um, what are the, some of the challenges perhaps of, of doing that stockpiling um, or, or, or having your, your safety net of resources, I suppose, if that's, if that's the right way of putting it? Well, certainly from the point of view of the food bank, um, our board of directors have acknowledged in relation to the growth factor that we're seeing and the prolonged period that people are staying with us, we've acknowledged the fact that in our fundraising we need to begin to allow uh, a set budget for dealing with the crisis and uh, food shortages. In the past we always said if we have it you get it and if we don't have it it's not there to share. But there are times where we look at some of the essential items, uh, long life milk, baby food, stuff like that and we'll say no if we run out we must go and purchase that from our funds. Um, we have to remember everybody who's working at the food bank, all our volunteers are unpaid. Nobody in the organisation is paid. Um, so as our costs increase, and obviously we've got the rent now for Bella Fletcher House, but that offers us so much in terms of a central point, it's worth the rent. But we have to go out and find about £24,000 £25,000 a year just for running costs for the charity. Um, so now we've said, well, actually, we need more than that because we need to have money in for a rainy day as well as have money in for the rent. Um, so that in itself is a challenge. Um, a lot of the work that we do, like you, Dylan, is it, it's an ethical endeavour. Mm. We're having to make choices and decisions that affect people's life. So even that first meeting, are we going to accept somebody or are we going to say no? Um, that's an ethical dilemma. Um, we end up with um, large pieces of food that we're given. So, for example, a big leg of lamb. Who gets that leg of lamb and who gets a packet of sausages? be so much easier for us if instead of a leg of lamb the meat's taken off it's minced and we can present it to everybody either as a burger or as a sausage or a bag of mince everyone gets an equal share and that's exactly what we're doing now with the Adaman prison our larger meat uh, cuts etc go up to the prison they're training the inmates to bone that meat to prepare the meat to put it into dishes blast freeze it send it back to us for keeping in our cold chain and then we can allocate it equally out across the island in the form of a beef casserole or a lamb stew or just sliced lamb with gravy um good quality meals going out to everybody rather than saying well here you can take a leg of lamb but there's only one of you but you know how to cook it there's a family of lamb that would really benefit but mum has no idea to cook it um so that resolves some of the some of the problems that we have. Dylan, I know that the Salvation Army obviously works on a very different scale to, to the food bank, um, but presumably those same value judgments still still apply? Absolutely. You know, I think for ourselves, uh, the bread and butter of the Salvation Army is that we care for, you know, the poor, the disenfranchised. Um, but when you kind of look at it ethically, you know, what does it mean to be poor? What's the definition of being poor? I've met multimillionaires who were poor um, because they had poor relationships or they had relationship breakdowns or had um, trouble with mental health issues like uh, depression and anxi anxiety, which affected them. So poverty, uh, you know, is not cut and dry. 
with with everybody so ethically morally you know we have a duty of care to look after um everybody and the salvation army i love the salvation army because it's for the whosoever we we don't judge we don't um, have prejudice we don't discriminate um because that's the easy road to take um where we we look at pe people in society if we see they're falling through the cracks we want to step into the gap and we want to make a, 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 a put our um, faith into action so it's easy to walk away it's easy to come up with reasons rational why we shouldn't help um, and I was saying to Neil earlier, but at least we know our conscience is clear. We've done our bits. We've done our best to bring about positive transformation. And, and that's at the heart of, I think, especially both our organizations, yes. that's, that's at the heart of what we do. We are having some texts and emails in. Thank you, everybody, for your contributions. Aaron Ibanez joins me in the studio to, uh, to voice some of those. Aaron. Fastamar, yeah, just one here from Andy. Um, he says, hi there. Please, if there have been 19,000 meals, I think this is for Neil, um, put out by the food bank and the NHS, average daily meal cost is £13.74 per day. He's worked out that that comes to £261,000 a year. So what reasons does Alf Cannon, that's the Treasury Minister, give for government not covering these costs? Neil, is that a fair question, fair point? Um, I think it's a fair question and a fair point. Um, the food bank, takes a lot of uh, pride in being independent. The fact that none of us are paid for what we do means that what, well, hopefully implies that what we say is based on our evidence and our experience. You know, we're not saying something to justify our incomes or our existence. Um, the amount of money is fairly phenomenal, it's being mentioned. And if it wasn't for the support of the Isle of Man public, and then the work that we do with the supermarkets to prevent their waste going in the bin and instead being redirected through a properly controlled environment up to the food bank and being distributed, we just wouldn't manage. Having said that, um, we rely very much on some major events throughout the year to get us through the year with food supplies. We anticipated um, after Christmas that we would be looking at running out of food round about July, and I mean significantly running out. We'll always have fluctuations. You know, rice pudding is really popular because you can eat it hot or cold. It doesn't matter whether you have an oven or a cooker or not, um, and it's a good comfort food. So there'll be days we don't have some days that we'll have masses of it in. Um, we would rarely get eggs, but when people bring it in, that's a really big event because it's a great protein to get out to families, although we will ration it. No one gets a full half dozen. If you're a singleton, you'll get three. If you're mum and one child, then there's four. You know, so we share it out as much as possible. But at the minute, we've gone into a significant decline in the amount of protein we're receiving. So we have seven freezers in the food bank um, to store uh, chilled food that we pick up from supermarkets. Uh, and unfortunately, for a number of reasons, those donations have diminished to a level where we have empty freezers. Um, we will freeze bread and we'll freeze milk when we get it. Um, that's not really economical. You know, if the meat comes in, then we'd be taking that bread out and giving people extra bread so it's not wasted. But it's much better to have meat in there. Having said that, there's other opportunities that we're working with to try and bring in uh food from other sources so we're working closely with Ballet Kelly Farm and there'll be some news coming out later this year 
about what they're doing to help the food bank and it's going to be significant. Um, and just a, another question as well for you, Neil. Um, a fairly big question. I don't expect you to answer or, or solve the, uh, the question in one answer, but please, what would alleviate the problem and remove the need for a, feed bank, uh, for a food bank? Um, that's a really good question because when I'm asked, you know, how do you know if the food bank's being successful, my answer will be when we shut the door because we don't need it. That's a successful food bank. Um, there is no one answer because there's no one problem. And I keep explaining this to politicians who say, oh, they're going to drill down and get the answer. You can't. The problems that we're presented with are complex and they're multifaceted. So you can't say one thing. I do know, however, that when I talk to uh, business people and politicians, I get asked sometimes, if we had a magic wand, if we could make a difference, what could we do for you? And I think they're often expecting me to say, oh, give me some food or give me some money or pay the rates, the rent. Um, but in actual fact, my answer tends to be the same. We have a lot of situations that we witness, and Dylan's probably seen it as well, where people will say, Mister, I'm supposed to be in the hospital this week. I've got a CAT scan or a CT scan lined up, or I'm doing an MRI, or I've just got a straightforward outpatient appointment, but I'm not going. And with my health background, obviously, I'm saying, no, this is important, and it's an, an opportunity for you, and you need to go. Um, and they'll say, I don't have that bus money. And it's really hard for people to comprehend that there are people in this island cannot put their hand in their pocket or their purse and pull out enough to get to hospital. And if I had my way, if government were simply to say, do you know what, Neil? Here, here's a book of travel warrants and you can authorise it for a day. We're not talking about people going on a week's uh, adventure around the island for a day to get them from point A to essential point B. So to get to the hospital, to get into Markwell House, you know, it's going to cost nearly £6 to go from Ramsey into Douglas. It'll cost nearly £9 to go from Port Erin into Douglas. But we know that there are empty buses going across the island every day. Well, why not sit these people on the bus and get them into that essential meeting. So almost part of like a sort of patient transfer, but locally. Yes, um, but this could be done without a cost. You know, often it's the, the response is, oh, we can't afford that. We couldn't, we'll, we'll lose money. No, you're not. The bus is running regardless. The seat's empty regardless. Let these people get on and get to what they need to do. Dylan, I suppose living on an island, perhaps we take geographical mobility for, for granted a little bit. Um, Sure. Again, the perception nothing's very far away, but it probably does provide a barrier for people if they aren't able to to afford that. Yeah, I was just uh, thinking through what Neil was saying, um, you know, and I'm I'm trying to uh, think what some of the uh, listeners are probably uh, contemplating on, you know, saying, well, how come I can't get a free bus pass if I need a hospital appointment, or how come I can't get paid to go from A to B? Why do they get uh, privilege, uh, you know, sort of? Uh, a privileged position to, to do that um, but you know the way I think about it is that if we put ourselves in other people's shoes and think that actually when the time comes and it's not a if it happens probably when it happens when we hit the crisis situation there will probably be a time when ourselves or somebody who's close to us a loved one will go through a difficult time and they will need a bit of help so 
Yeah, it's thinking about it in that context that actually for that season, for that short period, they may need a bus voucher just to get to the food bank or get to their um, healthcare appointments or whatever appointments it is, just to help them, uh, help themselves, so to speak. Um, I'm also thinking of the chaotic nature of people that um, some people are really well organized yes. and they have yeah. a lot of friends and family who can help them out, but some people uh, have maybe burnt all their bridges or they don't have a lot of people or neighbors to help them out and they need a bit of extra help. And I think we will be a good neighbor if we can support them in, in, in a similar fashion to what Neil said. So I think that's one of the best descriptions. We all work with people with very chaotic lifestyles. So d does that does that become like a almost a means testing issue then if you have to try and judge um, uh, clients, if that's the right word, on a, on a sort of case by case basis? Uh, certainly from our point of view we do because we do that uh, exercise at the first interview to say what's coming in what's going on I might sit with um, and one day I could sit with uh, a mum with perhaps three or four children and see that at the end of that exercise <clears throat> pardon me she's working with perhaps 40 or 50 pounds a week for food shopping and other essential needs I can sit with somebody else who comes in and says I really need help and we'll go through it and we might find they could have anywhere from 100 to 150 pound a week but they perceive it that they've got a real serious problem and they'll say but i don't have that much money and i'm always borrowing and i'm doing this and that's when we have to sit down and tease out where's that money actually going and for, for some people it's the first time they've had to really challenge themselves and account for how they're spending their money and then we begin to see issues and I'm seeing more of it since last September where I'm working mainly with women where they're saying I'm not able to cope I'm, I'm in crisis but when we look at the money there's more than they've anticipated and they said I've not seen it laid out like that I didn't realize that but then where's it going and why am, why do I feel like this and I think a lot of what I've been seeing since September is anxiety about the future not that I can't cope today but I don't think I'm going to cope at Christmas. I don't think I'm going to cope going into the new school year, that sort of problem. We were talking a bit, Neil, you and I before um, the one o'clock news about some of the um, scepticism perhaps about about the food bank services. I'm sure the same probably applies to the Salvation Army. We've had one message in, Aaron, yeah, um, uh, an example of that maybe. Yeah, perhaps dispel a, a myth for us, Neil. I was told by one of the volunteers that a great deal of those who use the food banks are from Eastern Europe. Is this correct and why? So I suppose uh, if you could, you know, allude to the, the demographic that you, you're sort of dealing with, Neil. Yeah, um, again, something that I hear a lot and people telling me, we know this to be true. Uh, in actual fact, um, our figures over the last nine months since we moved up to Bala Fletcher show that we still continue to have the majority of clients are Manx, so 55% Manx. The rest are going to be made up of British Irish Scots. Um, and after that, we've got something like 2 or 3% uh, European and non-European. It's really small. People who come from here, from around Europe and outside of Europe, come here because they've got a job lined up, they've got a work permit, they've got a great work ethic, and they come over and they stick to it and they contribute to the island. And that's great. And, and they get into the community they become islanders they're never going to be manx but they can be islanders um it's only when something goes wrong with the company and you wake up one day and 
suddenly they're told company's gone bust. There's no compensation. We've no um, redundancy for you. They can't sign on to benefits because they haven't been here for five years. They can't apply for social housing. They haven't been here for 10 years. So they're really stuck and they're entitled to nothing. And they have to make a decision. Do we go back home and be left home for a reason, you know, to have a better future? Or do we try and survive on the island with zero benefit and hope we can get jobs quickly, etc.? And that becomes a real problem for themselves the other agencies on the island and for the food bank. We're happy to help for uh, short periods of times, periods of uh, crises. What we're not here for is to support somebody for the next five years until their benefit kicks in. So uh, another ethical dilemma. Some, some, some nodding from you, Dylan. Do, would you sort of share those, those views? Yeah, so, you know, again, coming from a Salvation Army, we're not here to uh, stereotype or stigmatize anybody. Um, you know, I think we've got to be fair and just. And, um, you know, the way we look at people is they are people. And regardless of where they come from um, or where they're native from, uh, we are all part of one human uh, family, really, a big family tree. Um, and, yeah, I would... I'm quite um, interested to hear the stats, you know, that um, those attending the food bank, you know, that's, what's it, 55% Manx, yes. and then there's a variety uh, then up, upwards. Um, but yeah, my experience is that, you know, um, we've got to be careful to start pointing fingers to say, you know, uh, people are coming in just because of the perks, perhaps, or uh, the benefits. And yes, we do have to be careful and be accountable. Um, but yeah, we must be careful not to point the finger because there's always three pointing back. Another another comment in. I'm not sure if Aaron will have seen it yet, but um, it's an anonymous text. But it says some people spend their benefits on drink and drugs and go to the food bank for food. Um, and he, this gentleman or lady also says, I also know people who go to the food bank and sell the items they get on eBay. Um, Neil, maybe one for you. Is there is there any any evidence of that? Maybe. Yeah, again, something that we hear, but we don't have evidence for. Um, if somebody comes to us with uh, a drink problem or a drug-related problem, um, that's not a reason not to support them. We do say no to people in terms of coming on to the food bank. And sometimes during a period of support, if we become aware that somebody's abusing what we're doing, then we would look at uh, a termination. So, for example, if somebody arrives to pick up their first food parcel and they arrive in a taxi, then our view would be, well, if you've got the money to spend in the taxi, you do not need help from the food bank. If somebody sat at that interview and I'm saying, you've got £100 a month, uh, sorry, £100 a week to survive on, you don't need um, support from the food bank. You might need help. And that's where we'll signpost to other agencies including mental health and stuff like that or sometimes just sitting talking it through with them and making them aware of where that anxiety is coming from um and that's all part of the good management stuff being able to manage a budget etc so we can still help but it won't be directly from us we've been told for the last five years yeah people sell goods on um we've never ever had it witnessed but we know that people can benefit from having that food and pay off other bills. If somebody decides, do you know what, I can for the first time in months afford a bottle of wine, is that a desperately bad thing? 
Most of us will have a glass of wine during the week. So why not? Why say, oh no, you mustn't, or you must abstain. What I do hear more frequently is, oh, the people you're supporting are all sat smoking, drinking wine and watching TV. Well, you know what? Nobody sets out in life to say, I'm going to grow up, I'm going to have children, and then I can fall back on a food bank or I can go to the Salvation Army and they'll carry me through a crisis for a set period of time. They come to us out of dire necessity. Yeah. People that have a TV, they have it because they got it when they could afford it. Nobody wakes up and goes, oh my Lord, I'm going to the food bank tomorrow. Let's snip out and get a new car to drive around in and we'll have a TV and we'll just stock up the wine cellar because then we can pay it off through the food bank. That, that doesn't happen. We're already coming swiftly towards the two o'clock news. Um, Dylan, does the Salvation Army sort of experience the same kinds of uh, cynicism or criticism from the public? Um, I'd say this, Salvation Army has a very good reputation on the island from what I've experienced in my short time being here. And, um, you know, um, we're very encouraged, to be honest. I, I meet with the public on a Monday morning. I sell the papers outside of uh, Marks and Spencers and I get to talk to the public. And people are really encouraging. They're very positive um, towards us. And I, I do actually have public come to me and say, we're going to give you money because we know that the money is going to be going to good use and that you're going to reinvest it in our community and care for the people. So it's from that sort of heart that they give. Um, just following on to what Neil was saying earlier, you know, there's always going to be one that's going to spoil it for everybody else. And it's those um, few cases who do exploit uh, charities and, um, you know, take advantage. So you're always going to get that. So my question's always been, well, do we just stop giving out support to people altogether just because of a couple, uh, the minority? Um, you know, so it's a difficult one, really. And you, I don't think you'll ever truly alleviate, you know, those people. But we have to try and be as accountable as possible, especially towards our donors, towards the public, and be respectful of, of donations. Yeah. And um, we do it from that attitude. So we, we do constantly review, think, how can we do this well? We don't want to enable people to remain in poverty. We want to alleviate them from poverty and bring them out so that they are empowered themselves to look after themselves well. So that's where we're coming from. Yeah. So my wife, who's both a director and a volunteer at the food bank and is in usually on a daily basis, has a good approach to this, which is um, her concern would be she'd rather give somebody who doesn't need the food a food parcel than miss out on somebody who really does need it. And that's a fairly healthy approach to it. But I think our the fact that we're seeing people on a weekly basis, the fact that we get to visit them at home, the fact that we hear the stories, it allows us to tie everything together. And it's it will happen that somebody will try and con us. And we're dealing with the case just at the minute where we've probably been well and truly scammed um, with false information. But at least we've identified it we're addressing it now and we will make that decision as to whether or not we carry on supporting that individual but those rotten apples are small and shouldn't spoil the rest of what we're doing. 